Building a business requires years of time and effort. But what do you do when you're ready to start the next chapter and sell your business? In this episode of the Privately Speaking podcast series, you'll hear KPMG audit partner and host Erica Whitmore and Shez Bandakwala, Managing Director in the KPMG Corporate Finance Group, discuss practical guidance you can put into place when you're preparing for a possible sale of your business. I am super excited to be here today with Shez Bandakwala. Um, and Shez, I, you've got a lot of great background, and, and I do want to give you an opportunity to tell our listeners um, about that background and, and why, we're, why we're talking today. Great. Thank you so much, Erica. Yes, um, I'm a managing director on the investment banking side at KPMG. I've been in investment banking for about 29 years. I have spent my entire career um, advising companies, whether it's taking them public, selling them, raising capital for them. Typically, these are middle market companies. Most of these have been family or founder owned. Uh, and some have been you know, owned by private equity firms or VC firms as well. And I, I do think that, um, you know, like we've talked about, we've got a lot of different folks, you know, listening to these podcasts, and I do want to make sure that 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 we kind of cover the spectrum. But um, you've got a ton of experience here, and so I think I think where we should start is maybe a little bit broader. So at some point, right, you decide that you would like to sell your company or you'd like to leave it to family. So, you know, what are your general thoughts? And, and we'll just start there, and then we'll kind of dive in deeper as we go. Uh, that's a great uh, discussion point. In terms of founders, as they look at what to do with the company in the future, right, after they've gone through some of the hardest parts of, you know, being an entrepreneur and creating the company, which is by far one of the hardest things to do. But after you get through some of those pain points, what, how are you going to eventually get yourself out of the company? Is it an opportunity for you to pass it to, you know, future family members uh, or your children? Uh, do you want to just outright sell the business? As it, as it uh, relates to passing on to family members, what we have found that, you know, multi-generational family companies are few and far between. Sure. Typically, we see it can, it can work to the second generation. Once you get beyond that, it gets to be a real challenge. Um, you know, after that, the family members don't have uh, the same drive. Uh, and sometimes even the second generation doesn't work. Your children aren't old enough, right, to be able to take it over when you retire, or they just don't have, frankly, just don't have interest in the business. Where, where, where we have found family, multi-generational family companies uh, succeeding are ones that tend to be asset heavy, right? So where, whether it's real estate, Land, uh, you know, natural resources, where the future generations, it's uh, it's more difficult to screw it up. To be frank, uh, if right. they're very, uh, if they're based on assets, so uh, which you, which is why you find you know many multi generational big real estate families out there. Um, but otherwise, if you look at a company that's making a product. Or, or providing a service that is in and that is in a rapidly moving market and evolving market, those are very rare uh, that we see that to be multi generational. Sure, that makes a lot of sense. So when we were when we were talking earlier, I think one thing that you mentioned that I think is really important, and I, I think our listeners really need to hear, 
is is okay how do you create that value and and what is something that they can be doing as they're looking you know two three maybe even five plus years down the road um, to make sure that they can be in a position to consider you know selling a portion or, or even the majority or all of their business so a few different things um, you know first first of all you business is, you should always go into it saying your business is always potentially for sale, you know, uh, at any point, right buyer, like right your house, price right? comes along. Everything's for sale That's for the right price. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> That's right. And, but what can, what are things that you can do to, you know, help ensure that? One of the key things is to make sure as an entrepreneur that you are creating a team around you that uh, is truly capable of running the business, right? So providing that team uh, the ability with, to make decisions and giving them that ability to help, you know, be, be involved in the strategy and the growth of the business. And it's very difficult for entrepreneurs to do because many tend to, be, tend to have control uh, of all decisions as a key aspect of their business. And that can be very debilitating uh, in terms of creating value for your business because it makes the business very dependent on you as an individual and it makes it difficult for you to ex exit that business because the buyer will see that and they will need you to be you know, involved in that business to, for them to get value out of it. Because remember, from a buyer's perspective, they're not buying what you've done. They're buying what the company will do in the future. And if what you do in the future is fully dependent on you, it very, becomes very difficult to extract yourself from that. And in terms of, you know, whether that's, you know, that sounds to me a little bit like succession planning, right? And, but I think, I think it's not just succession planning necessarily just for the entrepreneur themselves, right, and or founder, I think it's it's a team, right? It's a team of individuals that can take the company into those future revenues. Correct. Yeah. So having having somebody, you know, besides that can just take over for you. Having a team of people that you know, whether it's you know, the the various heads, product development, sales, manufacturing, whatever, depending on what type of business uh, that you have, having those people, you know, creating true leaders within your organization. That's how you kind of really can create value for yourself. Uh, so then at that next phase of when you sell, then you have, then you have the ability to be able to extract yourself uh, from the business over time. Um, so it, you know, succession planning is always important once you get past that true entrepreneurial stage. And depending on where you are uh, in your life cycle, in your own life cycle, of how long you want to be involved in the life cycle of that business, always considering about, okay, who are the future leaders of this business? And giving them real leadership responsibility becomes important. Um, right. And that can help uh, position your business uh, for a sale. That's, so that's an important thing to start thinking about uh, well before you're ready to sell. Right, right, exactly. And in terms of you know, examples where you've seen a situation where there is a, you know, either a few or a full management team in place, right? What is that transition period or what can it look like? I guess, what have you seen work best, um, you know, in terms of percentage sale and involvement after? Yeah, so we're, what I've seen is that if, um, 
the business, you know, if the business is heavily dependent on you, you know, sometimes what's what you're better off doing is maybe a, you know, a not a full sale of the business, um, where and then that would lead more to a, you know, private equity buyer, which we'll touch on a little bit later, which will allow you to maintain some ownership in the business, uh, but sell a majority of it. Uh, but you can still stay involved and have economic incentive to stay involved because uh, the more value you create down the road, you're going to benefit from that as well. Um, but what we've seen is if you're, you know, trying to fully exit, you know, two to three years beforehand, you know, you really have to start putting that team in place um, and have it set up so when you are ready to sell that the buyer sees that, uh, that team is fully in place and has history running and building and growing that business. And can you talk a little bit about some of the companies that you've worked with? And, it, you know, I think as we we're preparing, we were talking a little bit about, okay, well, do you, do you fully get out, right? Do you sell 100% or do you keep a certain portion? And what are the pros and cons to either scenario? Yeah, so, I mean, in terms of keeping a portion of the business, I mean, if you, I look at it as what can you do with the money that you get from a sale, right? If if there is tremendous growth ahead for your business, you want to benefit from that. Uh, and you want to be in a position that you, you know, you don't have the full pressure of creating that growth, uh, but you want to be able to benefit from it. There was an example of a, a company that, uh, you know, made ha- uh, very well consumer branded company that made uh, very well known handheld thermoses and coolers. And uh, so it was an, a nice brand. They sold to a private equity firm. The firm, when they sold, it was about 10 million of EBITDA. Uh, it was just a, a emerging brand, but they had a very high quality product. Um, that private equity firm came in. Uh, took over majority ownership of the company. The sellers maintained uh, some ownership. But that business, under the guidance of the the founder, but the private equity firm as well, went from, you know, 10 million of EBITDA to now 244 million of EBITDA, went from a company that's now public worth $7.5 billion. That ownership that was maintained by the sellers was worth, multifold more than what they sold it for, which was great for them, but they didn't have to, the private equity firm brought all sorts of resources to the table to help that, uh, uh, help that management team take this company to these next levels. Yeah. So in a scenario like where there's a lot of growth ahead, you know, maintaining some ownership uh, can be very valuable. Yeah, absolutely. Which I think, brings us to something that is super critical, right? And I think everybody will want to hear your thoughts on this is when is the best time to sell? And I, you know, I get that it depends on the company, it depends on the product and or service, um, the life cycle, et cetera. There's a lot of things to consider there, but I do think that if you can give the listeners some things to think about, right, in terms of best time to sell. So the way I look at it is when you are, you, you should always be in constant evaluation mode of your business um, and really looking at the forces around your business, what's happening from a competitive front, not only existing competitors, but potential future competitors, right? So 
um, uh, are you able to keep up and provide uh, the type of product or service uh, that you know gives you a competitive advantage? Uh, if you see that landscape being potentially changing without more resources behind you as a standalone company, you have to start thinking of selling it well before that happens to your business because the, uh, it's easier to answer when a bad time to sell is. Uh, a bad time sure. to sell is, right. when, is your, when, when, your, when your business has been hit and it's you know, is starting to suffer because of, especially about, because of competitive forces around it. Because buyers will under, know that and you've taken away so much value of your business. There's no way to sell at a peak you want to sell when there is some visible growth ahead and buyers can see that. If they see that, that's what gets them excited because buyers want are, are buying the future, not what you've done in the past. And if they feel confident in the future, that will drive value in the business. So you want to be able to have them come in and see clear value in the future. Otherwise, the value of the business can diminish very quickly. Right. It, you know, one thing I think is important for consideration as well is, you know, who is the buyer, right? And, you know, clearly there's there's several different options, again, depending on the market, et cetera. But maybe if you can talk a little bit about, you know, strategic buyers versus private equity and or, you know, venture capital. I think, I think a lot of the listeners will kind of know what the, the differences are, but I think if you can touch on that, that would be helpful. No, that's a, a great, uh, great discussion point. I think I look at it as generally two camps of buyers. Um, there's strategic buyers, and we'll break that out a little bit, and uh, private equity buyers. Um, and for those who aren't as familiar, private equity uh, firms are, are across the U.S. and the world. Um, they are set up specifically to acquire companies. Uh, we are sitting on a record amount of capital in the private equity universe today, you know, over a trillion dollars globally, uh, that their entire objective is to buy and invest in companies. Um, and so then there's the strategic buyers. There are obviously, you know, companies globally, public companies, private companies, uh, sitting on a lot of capital as well uh, and a lot of resources to uh, to bear. Uh, now, their sole objective isn't to buy companies, right? They will do it if it makes sense uh, for their business, if it's a strategic fit for their business. So for, I would say in general, for every business, there are usually uh, logical strategic buyers. What most often people think of, okay, who's directly in my space? Who do I compete with? Those are my logical buyers. It's actually much broader than that. That's one potential category of buyers, uh, but other buyers, it, buyers look at where there are synergies, uh, and there could be product synergies. They could be making um, similar products, um, but, you know, but to, to different, end, uh, different end markets. Uh, there could be customer synergies. They could have completely different product set uh, that they're selling or service set that they're selling to a similar customer base. Uh, there could be channel synergies. There could be manufacturing synergies. Uh, so they're all buyers, strategic buyers look at how do, I, how do I benefit from the synergy to create 
to create more growth that would justify the price I'm paying for this company. Um, so we t- tend to do a full analysis of where are all the synergies out there, not only domestically but globally, uh, in terms of identifying the strategic buyers. The private equity buyers, they're looking at how can they take the company and not only continue the growth but potentially accelerate the growth. Uh, you know, the old world of private equity uh, from 20 years ago or more where, you know, people's perception was private equity was a bad thing that would come in and slash costs and sell this for the assets. That doesn't really, that's few and far between now. What they're looking to do is they're looking to, you know, give you more resources to drive drive further growth. And they can be, uh, they can be very attractive buyers. Um, not to mention what we talked about is they give you the capability of maintaining some ownership, which it's hard to do when you sell to a strategic buyer. You're typically selling 100% of the company, right? So yeah. the, you don't benefit yeah. from the upside with a strategic buyer. With a private equity buyer, you can. Uh, and they can be very attractive owners today. And often, I would tell you, more often than not, they're outbidding uh, strategic buyers on, uh, on deals. And and. You might have mentioned this, um, Shaz, but at least in your world and what, what your transactions that you're seeing, you know, any trends in the last, I don't know, I would say a little over a year, right? So, uh, you know, since the pandemic started compared to prior in terms of strategic versus private equity? Well, it's been even pre-pandemic, um, you know, there's been a more of a shift towards you know, private equity. The private equities are almost working like strategic buyers. They pick their spots of industry sectors and subsectors that they really know well, uh, and they go aggressively after that. So, uh, you know, if you have a private equity buyer that, you know, is strong in technology, they're not going to be, you know, likely bidding heavily after a consumer products company or vice versa. So they'll pick their spots. They feel like they can add value to accelerate growth. Uh, but what we've been seeing is, you know, private equity buyers have just become more and more of a force on every deal. And where, you know, yeah, and I don't know, I have the exact statistics, but I would tell you today still a majority of transactions are done by strategic buyers, but it's not 80%. Uh, but, you know, 20 years ago, it was probably more uh, around that 80% uh, statistic. And now, it's, uh, you know, they've, they've almost equalized. Strategic buyers still have a little bit of an advantage in terms of the percentage of transactions that they're doing, but the private equity has become a major force there. And the pandemic has probably even accelerated that. Um, we've seen since the pandemic, since after the, when the pandemic initially hit, uh, there was definitely a slowdown in M&A activity, but mostly because nobody knew what was going to happen. Right. Sure. We were, so everybody went, everybody, there was so much uncertainty that everything paused for a little while. But after that pause, you know, starting in the late summer of uh, 2020, uh, the activity picked up dramatically. And we're seeing today a record level of M&A activity. And the private equity buyers are very active today. So there's been no slowdown activity of, uh, of activity, not to mention people are looking at potential tax reform, capital gains tax increases, and maybe right. if they were looking to sell one to two years from now, they might be accelerating that. So we're seeing um, 
uh, tremendous M&A activity, uh, good assets that are performing uh, during this environment are going at record multiples, uh, multiples right. being uh, value over uh, profitability. Uh, so we're seeing record multiples out there. So uh, it's been it's been very busy. Yeah, <laughs> I can attest to that, uh, which is a great thing, which is a good thing. So a lot of times um, on this podcast, we do like to talk about where people have, you know, maybe fallen down or, or messed up or made mistakes, right? I think we can all learn from, um, you know, those types of things. So maybe if you can give us an example or maybe even a couple examples of a company that sold too early or, or too late. Yeah, I think um, I'll give you some examples on uh, on selling too late or trying to sell too late uh, or not pulling the trigger. Uh, this goes back to as you look at what competition could do around you, right? Uh, so uh, if you have if you create this thought of being infallible, right, that can put you in a very dangerous situation. Sure. So. Um, I had one company to work with that um, was uh, about to sell, had a great value on the table, and but they decided, you know, they were better off uh, at the last minute staying on their own. Um, you know, fast forward two years later, that company went bankrupt, right? So it goes back to kind of always being aware of what is happening around you. And now you can't predict things perfectly, right? And nobody would have been able to predict the pandemic. And for those companies that were right. impacted by it, that's different. But um, what, so you, it's hard to, it's very difficult to predict, you know, market overall, you know, market forces and things like that. But you should be always aware of what your competition is doing. And often uh, that competition could be, have more resources than you do. Uh, to go after opportunities. So, uh, so you find in environments that are especially uh, sectors that are growing rapidly, that will be attractive to better resourced players. Right? There's always people with more money uh, and more capability to go after something than you do. So you always have to maintain that competitive differentiation. And if you feel like you can't do that on your own, if you can't invest to continue that competitive differentiation, that's when you need to think of, okay, I need a partner, right? It could be a private equity partner. It could be a strategic partner. Uh, you know, it's always better for strategic companies to buy versus build on their own if they can buy. So you have to look at that and say, okay, this is going to be difficult to be able to do on my own and maintain a competitive edge. Uh, and we've seen that in many different industries that uh, it, everything can change around you, you know, very quickly. Um, and that's how the, some of these incredible companies have emerged, whether you're a, uh, you know, uh, you, you look at a major online retailer right now, right? They started out as an online, uh, uh, online bookstore at $14 million of revenue, and that evolved something much beyond that, right? But uh, you could have been in any of those sectors and not, and you had the opportunity to see that company evolve and say, okay, you know, how do I, 
how do I maintain a competitive advantage here? Um, and what we find is, uh, you mentioned the VC world, uh, what they, they also have a lot of capital. They're investing in new ideas with entrepreneurs all the time. Uh, and those ideas they're investing in are meant to be disruptive to industries, right? And that's what they're investing right. into companies that can disrupt, uh, whether it's with new products or service, and capture share. So when they capture share, that means they're capturing it from someone. Um, so be aware if you could be on the wrong end of that. Sure. Right. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. And Shaz, again, I always, I always want to think about our listeners and what's important to them. And, you know, I think a lot of them, this has been really, really good information. But I think, it, you know, in closing, what, what would be a framework, framework, excuse me, that they could think through, right, um, kind of no matter what stage they're at, but just so that they've always got, you know, kind of a strategy, right, as it comes to, like you said, you know, everything's for sale for the right price at any time, right? But what are some of the, the building blocks that they can start putting in place um, to make sure that if, the, if there's a window of opportunity, which there could be, there are right now for a lot of companies, you know, what are some of those things they should be thinking about? So, no, great point. So we already touched on one of it, you know, having, you know, starting to build the leaders around your organization that can take the company to the next levels, right? You want people right. around you that are better than you, ultimately. That's, you know, a, a very simple rule great of thumb. You know, yeah. Have people that will yeah. be, have people that are going to challenge you uh, as a leader. Um, so be, be putting, putting having that in place, constantly looking around in terms of what's happening in your competitive landscape, having an understanding of what, you know, where you want to get to from a value standpoint um, where it's enough for you. And that answer is different for everyone, right? I'm, I'm not right. one to tell what that number is, but it's going to be different for everyone. But what is, what is enough where you now have created something that can cr provide you the, uh, the, the financial flexibility for you and your family for, 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 the, for the future? Uh, so thinking uh, thinking about uh, about that, and always kind of also thinking about what to ha always be having a growth strategy in place, right? What you what you're doing today is important, but how are you going to continue to grow the business to have a ongoing growth strategy in place? And it shouldn't be here are the 15 things we're going to do to grow our business. These are the three to five things we're going to do and put a plan in place to grow your business because that is whenever you sell, a buyer is going to be looking at that. What is your growth strategy uh, in the future? And that's, and every company we sell, that's the key part of the story. It's a few things. What makes us unique? You know, what are our highlights? What are our, what we call investment highlights on the business? Why is the market that we're in good and good to be in? How is our product or service differentiated? How are our people differentiated? How, what kind of a, you know, what kind of customers do we have? Um, which, by the way, I want to touch on that as well. You know, how do you create value? Try to have good customer. I mean, besides growth, you know, everybody wants growth, which is the key to 
creating value, having good customer diversification, having good supplier mm-hmm. diversification, yeah. where you don't want to be dependent uh, on any single customer, any single supplier, uh, any single employee, right? Having all those elements of diversification creates value. And predictability creates value. So thinking about how you look at your business. So here's our customers that did business with us last year. What's their, uh, you know, what is their lively, or their longevity with us? How do we predict what they're going to do in the future? The businesses with the most value have great predictability, right? That's why recurring, people love recurring revenue businesses. Oh, that's um, the SaaS model, right? <laughs> the SaaS model and the software side trade; the, those models trade at tremendous multiples. But it doesn't even right. ha- doesn't have to be a software, you know, SaaS business. Any business with that reoccurring revenue and predictability, predictability is the key. It's how do you predict what people will do? So when a buyer comes in and said, "Hey, you did making up a number. You did hundred million in revenue with these." You know, business. What's the what's my ability to forecast what those same customers are going to do, you know, next year, and uh, and how am I going to grow that? Those those are the elements that create value. So, having you know, work to diversify your your business, understand the predictability, always have a growth strategy in place, uh, understand what your competitive differentiation is, and constantly be evaluating all those things so you're able to articulate that to folks um, and then it's gonna sometimes you know the you know your life will tell you when you want to start you just you're worn out right but it's often sure. not that uh, it's not that easy you want to take advantage of what's going on in the market so um, to, you know it's good to understand talking to you know people like myself investment bankers that are constantly in the market understanding what's there. So, no, you know, being realistic on what the value of your business is, uh, that's the biggest mistake sometimes we see people make is they don't necessarily have a realistic value, a realistic expectation of what their value is today. So when they do go to market, um, they can be disappointed. But our job is to give people those realistic expectations. Well, Shaz, this has been an awesome session, and thank you so much for taking time out of your busy day. I know how tremendously busy you are, especially right now, um, given <laughs> given the market. But uh, thank you so much for taking time out for our listeners, and uh, really enjoyed having you here. Thank you. Thank you so much, Erica. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to the Privately Speaking podcast series. And be sure to subscribe to this series to be notified of new episodes.